Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast where we discuss all things mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. To get more information and resources, visit the website at therapyforblackgirls.com. And while I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, It is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 19 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. Today, I'm joined by special guest therapist, Dr. Sheena Young, who is a body inclusive clinical psychologist, certified yoga teacher and level one Reiki practitioner from California. Today, Sheena and I talk all about healing after a sexual assault. Sheena is an alum of the University of Texas at Austin, where she earned a Bachelor of Science in Human Development and Family Sciences. She completed her graduate studies at the University of Houston and the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Chicago campus, where she earned a master's degree in counseling and doctorate in clinical psychology, respectively. Her dissertation focused on the development of a program for survivors of sexual trauma who are also women of African ancestry and is entitled Healing in Love Light, 
a culturally syntonic, trauma-sensitive yoga program. Sheena has also had the honor of working with children and adults in community agencies and a number of college counseling centers, including Northwestern University, the University of Chicago, and California State University, Long Beach. Currently, she enjoys working as a staff psychologist for counseling and psychological services at CSU Fullerton, where she also serves as the sexual trauma resource coordinator. In the therapeutic space, Dr. Young believes the relationship between client and therapist is the anchor of the healing process. Her work is rooted in existential, relational, and cultural theories which aims to understand how people meaningfully move through the world, how they make meaning in suffering, and how they relate to self and others while celebrating the intersections and beautiful influence of culture. Today, Sheena and I discuss terminology relevant to sexual assault. We also discuss some misunderstandings related to consent. We discussed historical implications that sometimes shape reporting and treatment of sexual assault as well as the need for culturally specific and trauma-informed practices. Sheena also shared a ton of resources that are great for you to learn more if you're interested in learning more about this topic. You can find all of the information that she shared in the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com backslash session 19. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sheena. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. I love what you're doing and I'm excited to be a part of it. Thank you. So I'm very happy to have you here today to talk about a topic that is really important um, and I think that we don't address often enough. Um, So today we're going to be talking about sexual trauma um, in the Black woman community. Um, And so I wanted to start with you maybe giving us a definition of what sexual trauma is. Yes, for sure. And um, if you don't mind, I would love to just invite, given the topic, um, I know sometimes it can be a little difficult to talk about this and to even hear. So in recognizing the sensitivity of the conversation, I would just like to invite your listeners to listen to themselves and pay attention to what they need, which might mean that they have to pick it up and put it down to take care of themselves and then just resonate noting noticing what resonates so that they can move intuitively in the next steps my hope for our conversation is that it's an opening for a shift that information can be shared with families and friends because this is real as we know and the pain is real so I just you know whenever I'm talking about sexual trauma especially in communities of color because we don't talk about it I like to begin with that In terms of a definition for sexual trauma, I like to think of it as the aftermath of experiencing any sort of sexual assault, sexual violation, and then the many ways in which being violated in this way, the loss of control, the loss of power over oneself or their body manifests in all areas of life. So mind, body, heart, and spirit. More specifically, sexual assault is any type of sexual contact or behavior that occurs without the explicit and enthusiastic consent of everyone involved. So I always emphasize that explicit and enthusiastic consent of everyone involved. So for example, it's consenting while under the influence would not be considered explicit and enthusiastic consent. Sexual assault can involve forced sexual intercourse, sodomy, can include child molestation and abuse, incest or sexual abuse by a family member, fondling, attempted or completed rape. And it doesn't have to be forced necessarily, it can be a coerced sort of manipulative approach to convincing someone to do something that they don't ultimately want to do. Certainly the definition varies by state, but for the most part, we see those themes consistent across the variations. And then rape can be anything including any sexual intercourse, including vaginal, anal, or oral penetration. Penetration may be by a body part or an object and can be completed by a known person or a stranger. Contrary to what we see, the myths in the community is that rape is someone jumping out of a dark alley that you don't know. 
but what is most common is being assaulted by a known person, a friend, an acquaintance, a family member, or um, an intimate partner. Okay, so you brought up a lot of good points there, Sheena, and I know we are going to get into a lot more of the details, but something I do want to make sure that we have some clarity around is um, you brought up the word coercion. Um, And so I wonder if you could give us some examples of what that looks like. Yes, so coercion is when someone convinces you or pressures you when we think about Um, peer pressure, certainly we can all reflect on a time when we were younger or teenagers and someone's like, well, everybody's doing it. Or they might say, um, they might say, if you don't do this, then you don't love me. Um, Or you must not love me because you won't do this. Or someone else might will do this if you don't. Um, So those are some examples where people are using their power, pressure, the sense of intimacy and connection and trust in a way that exploits the person that they're trying to convince to perform this sexual act or to engage in um, something that they're not ready for. So it can be confusing in the moment, in particular, if you're not aware of that dynamic that can exist. Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, oftentimes, especially when we're dealing um, with younger women, that that is not a conversation or a word that they've heard before. Right. Right. And and just the idea that since we don't talk about sex often in the black community or or sexual abuse, people, you know, it's it may be unfamiliar. And I think it gets even more complex when we consider the cultural sort of messages and themes that we get as black women, you know, for example, not being able to say no, that we are to serve or that we're helpers and we take care of. And so things can get more complex in a situation where someone is asking you or pressuring you or finessing you into doing something that you don't want to do. So can you give us any information that you may have around like the incidents or the the stats around how often sexual trauma happens with Black women? Yes. This gets tricky because as we might imagine when research studies happen, you know, oftentimes Black women and women of color are underrepresented in these studies. But what I do have access to, and we'll learn that even there, there's some gaps. General statistics for American women suggest that one in six, one in four, and I've even heard as high as one in three American women have been raped in their lifetime. Similarly, one in five Black women in some community samples had been raped in their lifetime. Um, This doesn't reflect unwanted sexual contact, molestation, and other forms of sexual trauma. And while those numbers seem high, because they are, it's likely that they don't reflect the full truth and reality, because as we know, and can imagine that Black women are underreporting these crimes to the legal system and even within their communities for a lot of reasons. So it's, it's difficult to know exactly how prevalent um, sexual trauma is within the, the Black community, but overall, um, just because of the secrecy and taboo nature of the topic. Yeah, and I wonder if you have some ideas about um, why the reporting may be less. I mean, I know just kind of across the board, it is oftentimes difficult for survivors to to come forward and say they have been assaulted. Um, but I wonder if you have ideas about why it may be even higher for Black women. Yes. So while reports on violent crimes do quickly reveal, as we discussed, that Black women are more likely to be victims of rape, they're less likely not only to report their assaults and to seek support or counseling services. For a Black woman who is brave enough to seek help, she's often met with being re-traumatized in that reporting or feeling re-traumatized. For example, being blamed for the sexual assault. What were you wearing? Um, We call that victim blaming or, you know, you probably asked for it or did you say no? Those are examples of things um, and experiences that women are often met with when they go to the police station to report 
an incident of, of sexual assault. Similarly, having to retell the story over and over again in detail can be re-traumatizing. And then experiencing unequal treatment. I, I think, you know, it gets even deeper when we consider the relationship of sexual assault in contemporary society and our history of, of as people of African descent, women in particularly. And then in the current context where we're seeing, we're having, we're seeing, you know, so much in front of us, it's very visible and tangible in terms of what the world and American society thinks about us and our black male counterparts. And so when we have the the frequent experience of seeing video of black men being murdered and women being murdered on on video and there is justice injustice in that in the the results why would we trust the legal system mm-hmm. so i think you know there's a legal part but then there's also the shame um and what if my family finds out what will they think and all of the things that you can imagine that um, are connected to that. Yeah, I mean, you definitely raised some good points there. Um, So in one of our conversations and kind of preparing for today, you mentioned something that I don't know that I hear often in talking about like sexual trauma. And that's like the impact of slavery and the historical origins of some of that and how that also plays a role in like healing and survivorship for Black women. Can you talk more about that? Yes, definitely. Um, You know, it was, it's really important to me to understand history and the influence of, of history, this idea of Sankofa, um, not being afraid to look back at where you've come from, um, and your past so that you can learn from it and transcend in, in future and forward movement. So when I was in my doctoral program, I was really curious about the history and the impact of history. I wanted to know more about this. And, you know, I I think intuitively I had some understanding. Um, But as I started to read more and, and explore thought leaders, you know, the themes became really consistent and clear for me. We've seen the Black woman be saturated with rejection and being degraded and sexually objectified, raped, forgotten. We've seen these, this imagery, um, and it goes back to the period of enslavement. So following centuries of rape under this institution of slavery, even now we see that we're battling and, and fighting against this sort of tarnished image that people have of us or society. So I like the way there's one author, Susan Brown Miller, who wrote um, a book against our will, men, women, and rape. And she says that American experience of the slave South is a perfect study of rape in all its complexities for the black woman's sexual integrity was deliberately crushed and that rape and slavery was more than a chance tool of violence. It was an institutional crime. So she really speaks to the way that systemically in the laws and in the way that you know, people were um, using their power. Um, it, it just was the way of the world. It was the way of the of the society at that time. So sexual oppression, psychological abuse, they were both used to enhance the labor force and facilitated even forced reproduction. Enslaved men were then rewarded with enslaved women after a hard day's work for sexual recreation. And we were thought of as property and reduced to objects. Bell Hooks talks about this idea of, of black women being objects. And she says, as objects, one's reality is defined by others. One's identity is created by others. And one's history named only in ways that define the relationship to those who are subject. So in other words, we didn't have that opportunity. We didn't have freedom. We didn't have choice. We were subject to who, whatever people said we were and whoever people said we were. Now, I think it's interesting because this might be sounding familiar even in 2017. I think these experiences and our history have been really influential in shaping the image of the Black woman for herself and the world. Um, and ultimately, 
I the way I like to describe it is that um, the history left imprints on our cultural heritage and and even now um, contribute to common myths of rape, prevailing images and stereotypes of the black woman and and naturally would then influence issues around reporting and help seeking. And I think one of the most damaging consequences is the culture of silence around sexual assault, sexual trauma, childhood, sexual abuse. Certainly, I'm inspired by the ways in which we are taking back, naming ourselves and being self-defining, but certainly there is um, a history uh, that we can't deny. And I like this conversation and, and this angle because it can help to provide a frame and context for some of the ways that the world society perceives us um, that don't feel inherently true to us. We know who we are, but when we're combated with these images that have existed for so long, the work and the struggle is real. Yeah, and I often find the most interesting part of that being kind of like how those messages become internalized. Mm -hmm. So not only is it about like having to fight against what other people think and say about us, but sometimes we don't even know that we have internalized some of those messages for ourselves. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when I when I think of that, sometimes it's easier to make a point of, you know, media and certain things that we consume, music, news, the imagery, all of those things we we absorb. We're sponges and we're taking in all of that all the time. And it isn't until we we know we have reason to seek understanding and a deeper truth that those things start to surface but then there's also which I think is a spiritual gift it gets complicated but ancestral memory and what I mean by that is the ways that traumatic experiences or our collective stories and history, our collective consciousness as people of African descent and particularly Black women, um, who I know to be very intuitive, uh, that those stories are passed on through generations and through our lived experiences and through our relationships and even in spirit. So sometimes that even gets tangled in our personal beliefs about ourselves and hides away, gets tucked away inside until it emerges and we're like, wait. But ancestral memory can also be really powerful and protecting and um, and helping us gain insight into our our shadow sides. So yeah, it, it's complicated. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely definitely is. And I know you've worked a lot with college students and so have I. So sometimes I find the most disheartening conversations, um, you know, like when I talk to young men and women about consent and, and hearing that on both sides, there really is confusion about what consent means right Um, you know so sometimes I will like do an activity with them that talks about um do you think that two people can lie in the bed together and not have anything happen and you know some of the responses are are really shocking to me like you know like well of course something's going to happen because why otherwise why would they be in bed together you know kind of thing Right. The expectation that if we kick back, if someone invites you over for Netflix and tacos, that it's not necessarily that it's not literal. They're expecting potentially that something else is going to happen. And so even, you know, what you're saying, the coded language that that people have around um, and the expectations that people have around sex. And I think, you know, it's interesting to me, given, like you said, that we both worked with college students, that at that age, the conversations are just potentially being started. And so I, you know, I I find that disheartening and, and unfortunate at times because I feel like there's so much space and part of the healing that we have as a community is to figure out how to have these conversations, how to remove ourselves, our fears out of the way so that we can um, equip our youth and our kids um, in ways that are empowering and that protect them as well. 
Yeah, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about um, like why talking about these things is such a big deal. I mean, again, I think, you know, as a society, we don't do well talking about sex, um, but it definitely feels like there is more shame um, and more silence around sex and these kinds of issues in the Black community. What are your thoughts about why that is? Yeah, I, well, what I hear most often is that when you, if you talk about it, you're condoning it, um, you're permitting it, you're encouraging it. Um, if somehow you have a conversation with your son or daughter about sex, then you're giving them permission and, and the green light to do so, which you know, I don't believe that that's true. I think talking, opening a conversation means that you are creating space and a, and a different layer of, of trust and relationship with the child to come to you. You're creating an opening for them to come to you if they have any, any questions. Because what we know, we've all been teenagers, is just because it's not talked about doesn't mean that we're not going to do it. And if it's not talked about, then we leave them to their own devices in the world. And what kind of information will they get when they Google? <laughs> and when they talked to their homies at school. So, you know, I think that's one big thing. And in, in, intergenerationally, as I was just talking about, some people, some parents don't know how to talk about it because they didn't have the conversation. And so they don't know what to do or what to say. And so I think that shows up often. As you mentioned, often sex is um, interwoven with this, this idea of shame. And that gets tricky as well. So I, I think there's there are a lot of reasons. And when we add on layers and identities such as religious beliefs and various ethnicities and cultures within the Black community, it, it can get even more challenging. It can feel like more barriers exist to the conversation. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit to kind of talk about, you know, what it looks like for someone who has been sexually traumatized um, and wonder if you could walk us through, you know, like, let's say um, somebody has been sexually assaulted and they finally work up the nerve to make an appointment with you. Um, what kinds of things would you talk with them about maybe in those first couple of sessions? Like, what would your work look like with that person? Yes, thank you. So, you know, it's this isn't an easy conversation to have even, you know, as I'm talking with you, I'm aware um, how big the topic is. What I enjoy talking about on this topic is related to the gaps that I've seen in the field. So not only is it a taboo topic in general society, but I've seen and I've been in circles where um, even within the helping field, people avoid questions around sexual trauma. And then if it goes beyond there, we typically have a, more of a leaning toward westernized beliefs and value systems or Eurocentric beliefs and value systems, which emphasize talk therapy. It emphasizes the ways that life and lived experiences impact the mind. And in my opinion and my experience in doing this work, that minimizes and excludes the, the whole person and their lived experience. It minimizes um, context, culture, um, identities, and as we talked about earlier, the historical influences. So as I started to realize this um, in my, my development as a clinician, it became really important to me to address the whole person. And so I like to think about the impact of sexual trauma from a mind, body, heart, and spirit perspective. So I can dive into that. Um, I can talk about this for days, Joy. So please, <laughs> please jump in at any time. I'll, you know, give some examples of each of those areas as I've seen it in my work. So where the mind is concerned, that might be what most people are familiar about is or familiar with, especially when they make the decision to initiate help through um, individual or group therapy. So trauma shows up in the mind through our beliefs and untruths. I believe as a clinician, my role is to reflect truth. We come, people come in with all of these distortions and these, um, these things that they've picked up, these ideas, these beliefs that have been handed to them 
in relationships with people and lived experiences, um, and then even in their, their own journeys. So a survivor can come to believe things that were communicated to her directly during the sexual assault, navigating a legal system or in their help seeking and communication with family in their own personal thoughts. For example, that they somehow deserved it, that they provoked it or attracted the sexual assault, that no one will believe them if they say something, that no one will want to be with them intimately, or that they can't survive this. And so where the mind is concerned, this may show up as symptoms of depression or anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, over or under eating, um, self-harm, and even contemplation of suicide. The other side of this, and what I see often in the, the Black community, is an attempt to forget it happened, to push it down, sweep it under the rug, and then to practice denial. And that's a survival tool. That's something that, you know, oftentimes we learn as children. You know, don't cry, don't you know, ignore this, sweep it under the rug. There is no, there oftentimes isn't space for an emotional experience or acknowledgement. I've heard all of those things and more and, and consistently, but one story of a survivor stuck with me. She said that during the assault, I was thinking, just let me get out alive. And after the assault, she was thinking, just let me die. And so it's an example that you know, the pain is so much so that life is no longer worth living. And it's the truth of how dark it can feel after such an experience. And so my role then is to hold space for all of that, all of the truth um, and the untruths and to help a woman see herself and separate from the things that she may have internalized from the abuse to recreate, reauthor a story that allows her to acknowledge what happened, but to separate it from who she is. So that's one part of the experience. What I have made my life's work about is acknowledging the impact uh, on the body, which I find is the most neglected area in sexual trauma. It's what I mean is the way the trauma physically manifests and impacts a survivor's relationship with her body. There is growing interest in this area, but still the emphasis tends to be on talk therapy. I've, I think it's very counterintuitive to work only with the mind when the trauma has happened to the body. So one author, um, Babette, Rothschild talks about, or she has a book called The Body Remembers, and she talks about um, how the body is a crime scene, um, essentially. And so you're in this body where this horrific violation happened, and you're in this body all the time. Um, it's different from being in a car accident on the corner of A and Z Street. Every time you drive, you get approached A and Z Street, you might find yourself getting nervous your heart racing, et cetera. But when your trauma has happened to your body, um, it can feel like you're in a chronic and persistent state of angst and hypervigilance as if you're still even in the moment of the sexual assault. And then it gets even more tricky when you've experienced multiple traumas, not just sexual, sexual trauma, but um, multiple traumas. So where the body's concerned, you might have um, physical symptoms. Research studies tell us that rape victims in particular notice physical health changes in their body and a change in their well-being more than you know, the average woman within a month after the assault. And that shows up in different ways. Some examples are stomach pain, acid reflux, headaches, heart or chest pain, shortness of breath, sleep problems, numbing, tingling in the body, pain during intercourse, gynecological issues, and even changes in their periods. And likewise, on a physiological level, this is the part of our body, our brain, that tells us when we're experiencing a threat, so our fight or flight response. And when we experience a trauma, our sympathetic nervous system um, kicks in, 
tells us to run or sometimes people freeze and or to fight. And so what I often see are people getting stuck here. I call it the high zone. So that can materialize as anxiety, fear, memories and flashbacks that just sort of force their, their way into the mind. And then the opposite is the low zone where someone can um, feel really tired, have low energy, um, depressive symptoms, um, or may check out altogether. And so my approach to working with the body, um, I'm a trauma-informed yoga teacher as well, and I incorporate yoga that gives people space to make choices with their bodies in ways that sort of neutralize the sympathetic nervous system that help them to establish a restored sense of safety in their bodies. And I find often that when people don't have the words for what happened, that the body comes forward and is able to communicate and then the words follow. So those are two areas. I know I said a lot. Did you have any questions before I jump into heart and spirit? Yeah, I do want you to, one, um, tell us more about what that means to be a trauma-informed yoga teacher. Yes, thank you so much for that question. So uh, trauma-informed is an ideology that exists in the helping field. It's not unique to yoga. And what it means is that the people that are facilitating healing spaces are considering and sensitive to the ways in which trauma impacts a person's experience in the world. So one tangible example is when someone has been attacked, for example, if you walk up behind them, it may be really startling for them. So um, being sensitive to those sort of triggers that can happen. So in trauma-informed yoga, some of the key tenets are using invitational language. We spend a lot of time being told what to do, how to be, how to you know, um, how to exist in the world. And when we think about survivors of sexual trauma, they've lost their power and control over their, their body and uh, over their choice. So in a trauma-informed yoga class, the instructor, myself, or in a session, I'm using language like, you know, maybe it feels good to, or what would it be like to explore? I invite you to, as opposed to do this, do that, move into this pose. It gives opportunities for a survivor to move deeper into a pose or not. It um, really is about an opportunity and safe space to make choices in a way that they didn't have in the the traumatic experience and also that they may not you know feel confident in in the world so those are just a few of the highlights similarly you know turning the lights off suddenly or using certain scents could be triggering for a survivor um, but ultimately it's about facilitating a space where a survivor has um, practice and making choices so one example during a first encounter I might see I may offer some a few choices for them to take and they have a hard time making that choice it can be something like you know in a seated position um, maybe closing the eyes or keeping the eyes open. You see them struggle with that because they're not used to tapping into the inside and what their intuition is telling them they need in the moment. And after some work, I've seen people just sort of come in, sit down, and they move into a pose that feels good for them without any um, guidance from me. And they report then outside of the therapy space that they're noticing more confidence and assertiveness in making choices um, in their day-to-day life and particularly with their body so no I don't want that or even a little to the left a little to the right in intimate experiences they're feeling more empowered and emboldened to communicate what their boundaries are okay okay and I don't know if you are going to share more about what this looks like um, but I'm very curious about um, like just how the the yoga piece then allows the language to follow so I'm not sure if you're going to go into more of that or if you want to spend some time sharing that now so, you know, it never looks the same. What I can say 
most often happens is I'll meet with someone who, you know, in a pre in an you know a meeting where we're just trying to get to know each other. I'm talking about what therapy can be like and um, answering any questions, just getting to know a little bit more about their history. I'll find that our survivor has a really hard time just describing or stating that something happened. Um, they're not able to use the word sexual assault or rape, or sometimes they can write it down. Sometimes they don't even report a sexual assault or a trauma. They just say that something happened to me um, that I didn't want to happen when I was a kid or when I was a teenager in this relationship that I'm currently in. And through a, a yoga practice with therapy and sometimes just with with yoga in a therapeutic space, as people are given more options, as I mentioned, and with a combination of exploring different themes within yoga, for example, boundaries, setting boundaries, assertiveness, personal choice, connection with whatever higher power they believe in, relationships with family and how those can change, just in sort of reflecting on those things that exist as a as related to experiencing a sexual trauma the areas of life that are impacted in addition to the opportunities to make choices in the yoga practice and let's not underestimate that the brain when it gets stuck in that high or low zone it's sometimes that impact literally impacts the speech center so we can think about how when someone in the moment is experiencing any sort of trauma they freeze they don't have the words that they can't say help they can't say no because they're in that freeze mode the brain shuts down so if they get stuck there in their lives it can be really difficult then to have the word so once we're you know, restoring that balance in the brain, the physiology, we're talking through themes that are related to the sexual trauma, and they're physically moving their bodies in ways that empower them to make choices, we start to see the language just start, it just starts to unfold. So they may come in one day and say, I was raped. And this is the first time that I'm saying this. But it's important for me to call it what it was. Um, or they'll write a letter describing what happened and they'll read it in session or they'll ask me to read it with them. And it's the first time that they've ever said anything about um, or said the details or acknowledged what has happened. So it's it's kind of I know you can probably relate joy to that that magical something that happens in therapy that you can't quite describe um, but in lived experiences it's it's real and tangible in the moment some things are you know a mystery I I, I find in this work and I think that that's um, a beautiful um, part of the healing process yeah absolutely and it definitely sounds like it unfolds in the way that it's supposed to um and i think often when we talk about like holding space that is a beautiful illustration of it right like not rushing into getting details and you know kind of feeling like that is the important part of the work yes exactly yeah. and and following the lead of the person who is um, ultimately responsible for their own healing um, as opposed to having an agenda and a, you know a way a cookie cutter way of addressing um, a really sensitive issue um, so I, I agree with you in that yeah okay so I know you were going to move on now to um, the heart and spirit <laughs> yes, thank you for keeping me on track. <laughs> um, so heart is, I think, one of the, the places that um, stands out, um, particularly in my work with women of color. Um, for me, the heart represents relationships. And so when we come from a you know a community that is, is really about connecting and family and friends, um, the heart gets really, it becomes a really important conversation. So um, because sexual trauma is a relational and um, a trauma that happens between people, something horrific and violating that happens, um, this can show up in a way, in ways that um, a survivor relates to herself and others. So I often see this 
and themes of mistrust of others. They don't trust anyone or they don't trust all men or they don't trust all women. Social withdrawal, withdrawal, they'll isolate. They may experience loneliness. No one understands what I'm going through. No one else has been through this. I'm a burden to other people. It may lead them to mistrust their intuition, to experience self-hatred, and ultimately can impact how they engage with others. And I think, you know, one way that I see this happen is that when a survivor, someone, a, a woman or a child who has experienced this sexual trauma, sexual assault, child abuse, whatever the experience, that they go to tell someone that they trust with the hope that they're going to be supported and held and they're not believed by that person or they're um, rejected, that they're told that didn't happen, that you must have deserved it. What, it, what did you do to deserve it? Or that's your father. How could you say that? or you're married, um, rape doesn't happen in, in marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever is communicated between those two people can then be internalized and obviously can wreak havoc in the mind of the survivor, but can create lasting ruptures in, in relationships overall. So I think that one is, is really important. And I think being in therapy when the therapist and the client is connected and there's a safety in the relationship, I believe healing happens in relationships. So I'm having a space where they can explore these themes and in a relationship that is safe, where someone does believe what they're saying can allow them to um, practice in moments of vulnerability and trusting their intuition as well. And then the last area is spirit, which is a person's relationship with a higher power, with God, with source, a higher self, whatever that might be for the individual. And oftentimes I see that relationship being compromised or or hurt, and that a survivor might feel like the sexual trauma was being punished or abandoned by God. So I'll hear people say, well, you know, I used to believe in God, but I don't, I don't believe in God now, or I don't know if God exists, because if God exists, how could this have happened to me? How could he allow this to happen to me? And naturally, that would then affect a person's sense of hopelessness and, um, or a sense of hope and have them to feel hopeless or worthless. They may experience a loss of purpose and and disconnect with um, their work, their life's work, and can sometimes just feel aimless in their life direction altogether. And so I think, you know, that's an important part of the healing conversation as well, considering a person's relationship with their spirit. So with all of those things in mind, that becomes my my guide, my roadmap for working with someone. And I think all of them are equally important. And um, I've seen really transformative experiences when people are um, able to feel safe and show up in, in a space in these ways. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like a very comprehensive approach, Sheena. I mean, and it does really feel like it respects all of the ways that this impacts like all of the different areas of your life. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm definitely led by my own experiences in life. I think, you know, to me, the best therapists are those that acknowledge their shadows, right? And those that can relate to the struggles, whatever they might be. And it doesn't feel good to me when, you know, people only hear part of my truth, right? And they don't consider who I am as a whole person. And so I really just try to mirror and reflect that back in any space that I hold and in any relationship that someone is sharing their their trust and vulnerability with me. Gotcha. Okay. So is there anything more you want to share about like specific interventions or things um, that you you find have been really helpful to help women kind of walk through this? Mm, I think so. One, when I was in my doctoral program, I created a program or first I sort of did a, a survey um, 
a market analysis of existing treatment programs um, for survivors. I was particularly concerned with what programs existed that considers the unique experience of being a Black woman or that have um, culturally sensitive approaches, culturally informed, the ways that, you know, being Black and the intersections being uh, female, how that impacts a survivor. Were there treatment programs that had approaches that were culturally grounded? And second, were there approaches that considered the, the body or any sort of creative intervention? I think we're a really creative, beautiful people. And, you know, when we are in our truest, um, we're also attuned to our body. So I wanted to know if those existed. And at the time, there were not a lot of programs, as you would imagine, that incorporated both. So I created a program um, that's called Healing in Love and Light from that research that bridges those gaps. And it is a combination of trauma-informed yoga and group the group therapy support group for survivors of African descent. And what I was particularly inspired by in this program and creating the program was uh, the theory of Africana womanism, which was created by Clonora Hudson Weems. And she really speaks to the way that we've been denied the authority of naming and defining ourselves. So then the work is centered in the group on seeking, knowing, and living in our personal and embodied truth. And that's the name of my, my practice, Embodied Truth Healing. So ultimately, this program that, you know, is arranged around themes that are unique to women of African descent um, who have survived a sexual trauma, for example, being a self-definer, sisterhood, being in community, um, relationship with the higher power, all of the things that we've been mentioning today are in, you know, integrated in the program throughout. And I look forward to being able to offer that program to communities because of, as I've seen in the work that I'm doing, it can be really powerful. And I think, you know, as a, as a clinician in this field and with the gifts that I'm very um, humble to have, I believe it's, it is of urgent importance that we create our own criteria for assessing our realities and that we do this in thought action in whatever we're creating and in our own healing experiences. And so I'm, you know, always happy to have conversations about that as well. Wonderful. So you have already kind of sprinkled lots of resources throughout your um, conversation today, but I wonder if there are like specific books or blogs or articles or things um, that we can include in the show notes that you find that like clients really like. Yes. So one online resource is uh, RAIN. It's a website and it's Rape. RAIN stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, and I can send these over to you as well. It's the nation's largest sexual violence org, provides information for survivors who are thinking about getting help and for those who are actively seeking help. And also, for example, it gives you examples of what to do following a sexual trauma, how to preserve and collect evidence following the assault. That website is centers.rain.org. Also, there is a national sexual assault hotline where people can call and speak with someone anonymously and ask questions or, you know, be connected with a resource. That number is 1-800-656-HOPE, H-O-P-E. And then I have, I do have a list of books that I'm happy to provide. There is, um, there are books about trauma-informed yoga that someone practicing in the helping field and also for a survivor herself can use. And I can just, uh, we'll follow up and I'll send you a list of things that have been helpful to some of my clients. And, um, and we'll take it from there. Should I also share my personal contact information in case yes. that might be helpful? Yes. Where can we find you, like your website or any social media handles you'd like to share? 
Okay, so um, as I mentioned earlier, my practice is Embodied Truth Healing, um, and I can be found on Instagram at Embodied Truth Healing, E-M-B-O-D-I-E-D, Truth Healing, all one word, and my website is the same, www.embodiedtruthhealing.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Sheena. I really appreciate everything that you have shared with us today. I know that the audience will also appreciate all this information. Thank you so much, Joy. And I really hope, you know, my intention in sharing this information is is really just to start the process and, and create opening plant seeds for, for truth to come forward. And I really hope that people were touched by this conversation in a way that that can help them to you know, move forward in creating a, um, a, a reality rooted in truth and in healing and in community. And really that this was a conversation starter for, for many people. Um, I, I definitely think it's time that we start to talk about what is real in the experience of sexual, sexual trauma. And so thank you again for inviting me and having me on. Absolutely. So as you can hear, Sheena shares some incredible information that I think we don't often hear related to sexual assaults. So I hope that you can appreciate the level of intent and commitment that she brings to this space. Please remember that if you are struggling with an issue related to sexual assault or other issues that you're looking to receive therapy for, you can search for a therapist in your area by going to therapyforblackgirls.com backslash directory. And make sure that you're checking often as new therapists are always being added to the list. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the episode. Make sure to share those with us on social media and use the hashtag TBG in session. You can find us on Twitter at therapy for the number four B girls. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at therapy for black girls. And please make sure to share this episode with a friend or two who you think could really benefit from hearing it. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity. 
that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 